Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. And this week, we're talking about Daniel, the book of the prophet Daniel, although not in the Hebrew tradition. And I'm going to start with this quote, Ben. This is the opening line from Robert Alter's introduction to the book of Daniel. Daniel is surely the most peculiar book in the Hebrew Bible. Now, right away, if you've read the book of Daniel, you get it. On the other hand, Ben, you pointed out, isn't that what he said about Kohelet, right? Ecclesiastes? And Ezekiel, yeah. (laughs) And so we had to go compare. What did he say? The conclusion is, Alter finds numerous books of the Bible, of the Hebrew Bible, strange, but in different ways, right? So Daniel is surely the most peculiar book in the Hebrew Bible, whereas Kohelet is in some ways the most peculiar book of the Hebrew Bible. Those two are a lot alike. Good catch, Ben. I felt that too. Here's Ezekiel. Ezekiel is surely the strangest of all the prophets. That's different. Okay. So that's just within the prophets. He's the strangest (laughs) of all the prophets, but the strangest books, I guess, are two. And who knows if Alter realizes when he's writing one, because he's doing this translation over years, and I don't know when he writes the introduction, but sure, he doesn't. maybe he doesn't know he said the same thing about two books, almost the same thing, right? So we're definitely dealing with a strange book here. This book is the easiest book of the Hebrew Bible to date, meaning to actually put a date on. This book comes from when, Ben? Around 175-ish BCE? I think it's before 164 because 164 is when Antiochus IV dies and it doesn't mention his death. You can really pinpoint it because it talks about events up to one certain point. And because it's talking about Antiochus IV so much, it would definitely have mentioned his death if it was written after his death. Yeah, whereas, you know, he is mentioned. So we know that's part of how we know the date of the book is the events, the historical events that we know of that are attested elsewhere that are also attested here. I should say he's not mentioned by name, but the way that the prophecies are laid out, it's blatantly obvious to historians that that's who it's talking about. Right. And there's one chapter in this week's reading that goes through a lot of, I mean, even verse by verse, maybe one or two verses, and you're talking about a different historical event every one or two verses. Uh I remember my commentary just shows every one of them is spelled out in terms of what this is about, what actual historical event this refers to, who the person is. This becomes fun because now, Ben, your Herodotus reading comes into play, right? In fact, that was true back, we, we didn't mention it, but Herodotus is describing Babylon the same way we see it described in Daniel. He comes in and he sees the, the statue of Zeus, he calls it. Of course, this is Bel, you know, but we call him Zeus, he says, because he's a Greek. So you, you have that. He's writing about the fall of Babylon to Cyrus. Isaiah prophesies that Babylon will fall to the Medes, but that's not what happens. It happens that Cyrus the Great, who, again, we know this, even Isaiah calls Cyrus the Messiah. He's the one who captures Babylon, right? And that's described in Herodotus. Now, he is king of the Medes as well, but he's a Persian. That is true, yeah. So the Medes and the Persians become one thing because Cyrus conquers the Medes, right? And then he conquers the Babylonians. 
And he's a guy who's, you know, he's well attested as a good guy, right? Meaning he's the one who let the Israelites go back to Jerusalem. Benevolent monarch. He was tolerant, right? Yeah. Tolerant of other people's faiths and whatnot. So he's very well known for that. And I mentioned the education of Cyrus, the greatest leadership book ever written, according to Peter Drucker, right? The father of modern management. So you have all this stuff going on. The writing is some in Aramaic, some in Hebrew. Mm Mm-hmm. What's in Hebrew, it looks like, again, because we know the date of this, it looks like there's a writer who doesn't really deal in Hebrew on an everyday basis. It's not their first language. Yeah, it's it's Aramaic now. Hebrew's gone. But he wants to sound like a prophet, but he doesn't do a good job of it. He's not even classified as a prophet in the Jewish tradition, right? His writings are found in the writings. Remember, the Bible is divided up into three parts. The Hebrew Bible is divided up into three parts. It has the Tanakh, right? It's called Tanakh because it has the Torah which is the five books of Moses, also known as the Pentateuch, traditionally ascribed to Moses. You have the prophets and then the writings. This book falls in the writings along with Ruth and Esther. And I was saying to you, Ben, I feel like after the Torah, all the good stuff's in the writings, man. Yeah, it's very interesting commentary on the Torah, right? You know, it references it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. And here you have a book that is like Ruth, a book that surprised us. So we know that for the rest of the year, and if you didn't know this, for the rest of the year, your readings are shorter than they have been. Right. We've, we've been, we've gotten through all the longer readings. So if you're reading along with us, you've got less work than you used to have, but there's more work when it comes to studying sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Because there's so much going on. In some ways, since you don't have to spend as much time on reading, you then can spend more time to studying it and realize, oh, there's a lot of depth to this text. Whereas the others, there's probably just as much depth perverse, so to speak. But you can't get in that far because the reading was so long. Yeah, it's so dense. So Ben, the other thing, tell me if I'm reading this wrong. What do you think? It looks like somebody, I can't say the writer necessarily, somebody is trying to make this look like that the prophecies that are given here, the things that are prophesied as coming have already occurred. That much I think I can say, right? So it looks like whoever's trying to make this look like it's older than it is wants us to think that these prophecies were made long ago. And now they've come to pass as prophesied, which is different from what happens with Isaiah, for example, at least on a technicality, as you've pointed out. Yeah. Am I reading this wrong? I think that is a good way to see this from like a fundamentalist perspective. Someone's going to look at Daniel as you know prophesying these way future events. But again, you can look at the book linguistically, stylistically, and then even historically and see that the one we have is finalized at a much later time than its ostensible historical context. And there's several reasons you can kind of tell this. Right off the bat in chapter one of Daniel, there's some major historical errors with regard to dating of events. The names of kings are also probably wrong. Like It probably wasn't Nebuchadnezzar It was probably a different king. We'll get to that. The relations are wrong sometimes. Sometimes it says like this king was the son of this king, and that's not exactly correct. The succession of kings and kingdoms isn't always accurate. This is to say that somebody who is putting this together and compiling these stories and then adding to them as needed has access to maybe not completely accurate historical information. Originally, a lot of these stories would have come out of the exile. So certainly we're looking at stories that are as old as the exile, you know, mid 6th century BC. But the bulk of this is almost certainly pseudoepigraphal, right? 
it wasn't written by Daniel himself. If there's a historical Daniel that existed, these accounts probably didn't all happen to him personally. And maybe they only contain some kernel of reality. So like you said, Christopher, it's written partly in Hebrew, partly in Aramaic. The Hebrew writing is probably not the first language of the writer because there's some issues with it. <laughs> yeah. And this suggests that the date of it is probably around or during the reign of Antiochus the Fourth. And the reasons for that are that he was the Greek, the Seleucid king that outlawed Judaism and he desecrated the temple. And so this kind of made him the object of a revolt, which was the Maccabean revolt. That's where we get like first and second Maccabees, the books in the Catholic canon, but not Protestant. That is where we get the Hanukkah tradition because after the revolt, when they took back the temple, that's when these eight days of Hanukkah happen. And anyway, that's where that kind of comes from. Yeah, so you bring up some really good points and, and they remind me of other points that are related, which, you know, for example, you mentioned the Maccabees that are apocryphal for us, canonical for Catholics. Another reason we know their date is that they look a lot more like other writings from the period that scholars are saying they're from that are extra canonical. Daniel has more in common with apocryphal works and with some of the Qumran scrolls than it has with the rest of the Bible mm -hmm. in terms of tone, content, language, specifically some particularities in the language, right, that are theologically significant. Yeah. And as you were saying, Christopher, Daniel's not considered a prophet in the Jewish tradition, but he is in the Christian tradition. And the reasons for this are pretty complicated, but at least in part, they would be related to the references that Daniel has to this, quote, son of man. And the Christian interpretations of Daniel imply Jesus from that. And so Daniel also shares many commonalities in terms of apocalyptic literature with the book of Revelation. Exactly. And that's where you and I, Ben, in pre-show discussion in musing over the question, why is it that this book shows up in the way that it does in the Christian tradition, right? Whether it's its place or its prominence or both. And the answer you came up with really is, well, it's quoted in the book of Revelation. I mean, we see lines here in the book of Daniel that are quoted verbatim in Revelation. Right. The other two things about this book that we haven't brought up yet, Ben, are the two famous stories that are probably what people know best about the book of Daniel is Daniel and the lion's den. That's one. And then there's, if they remember this, that it's in this book, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. Did I say their names right? Yeah. Well, they're Babylonian names. They're Aramaic names. So those two famous stories, if you're wondering if we're ever going to get to those, there's that too, right? And so that also shows us there's sort of a difference between the first and second half of the book. There are these stories that look like they're older, that are brought in, that are reworked, which is something we've seen before. We also have that the, what would you say, Ben? They... So they're highly stylized characters. They're these pious, you know, lacking psychology, no nuance, right? Cardboard characters, right? When, we, when have we seen that before? Maybe the book of Job a little bit? You're talking about just the characters in general, like the king and- I mean, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, they're each playing their part, right, within the story. They're stereotypical. And again, lacking a little bit in psychology and nuance. They're sort of black and white. Again- for fundamentalists, of course, they're black and white, right? But we're not fundamentalists. That's not my experience of the world or of people. When I say the world, I don't mean the world in the pejorative sense as we use it as believers sometimes, but I mean people, including prophets, are people. People are people. Yeah. And so they're typically not black and white. This is one of the lessons that I tried to bring out for my children as a homeschool dad and reading biographies to realize that there, there are no good people and bad people. 
right? There's no person who's all good and no person who's all bad. In our tradition, we say Jesus was a perfect man. And the idea of a perfect man is really important as a model to strive for. I don't know that I'll be a perfect man in the sense that we use it in that way. But then again, if we read this as complete, then that's something that I can strive toward. It's something I can even maybe achieve. But then, of course, as soon as you're complete, there's something else to complete. Well, what does Solzhenitsyn say? He says that the line between good and evil goes right through the heart of every man. Right through the heart of every man, yeah. And then you have Jordan Peterson who dedicates his career to answering the question, how do I avoid becoming Hitler? Uh -huh. By the way, uh, Hitler shows up in some of the commentary that I read. Oh, yeah? It was kind of, it was Hitler and Elvis, actually. Oh. Yeah, because you have this tradition of saying that people didn't die who died, you know, especially kings that we love. So I jumped ahead to the most recent example, which is Elvis, right? We can say Elvis is the king. So he's a king who didn't die. Then there's, some people say Hitler didn't die. There's King Arthur from Britain and others, right? Others in antiquity, including here in the book of Daniel, we see that. What about the 12th Imam? Right, the 12th Imam in, in Islam, right? Exactly. He didn't die. He went into hiding, occultation, right? And he'll come again when the time is right. And Jesus, right? Jesus fits into this category too. He doesn't show up on the list in the commentary, but I think he fits the same category. We got John the Beloved and we got the three Nephites. Yeah, so this is a motif. Right, yeah. exactly. So this is a motif that happens. And there are a lot of other motifs. And some something about these stories too is highly stylized. So you have highly stereotypical characters, highly stylized stories. They have many markers of being myth. Yeah. So we're back to, we haven't really looked at these kind of writings since I think the Pentateuch, right? Yeah. So some of these stories that come in here and then how they're inserted into the historical tradition, so to speak. One of the questions that kind of came up for me is like, why spend all this time making this book that purports to be a foretelling of all of these events that have already just happened? But it seems obvious to me like when I asked that question, that the text was written after the events occurred as a way to bolster the Jewish identity, right? Because again, they've returned to their land, but they're still struggling to maintain their identity while still being ruled by foreign powers. Because, you know, you have the Persians and then you have the Greeks and then you're going to have the Romans come in. These stories serve to enrich and support the Jewish identity. So Daniel found its way into scriptural canon for its compelling stories and also the themes. Like some of the major themes are going to be persistence of the Jewish identity, even when they're in exile or under foreign powers, and the sovereignty of God over the nations. Especially the sovereignty of God over all nations. Yeah, God allows this king to rule. He allows these things to happen, or he ordains that they happen. It's all completely under his control. It's just a chessboard. But he controls both sides, right? <laughs> yeah. And again, that's not that different from any other ancient conception of God. And anytime two nations face off, it's really their gods who are facing off. Each nation has its own god. And again, I've mentioned how this shows up in the Iliad. You can see it here too. It's, it's maybe easier to see in the Iliad because you, it's described to you how when the spear is thrown, that is the hand of the God that guides it. Yeah. And if that God is more powerful than the God of the mark, then it's going to hit its mark. Yeah. And it's not even, you know, the, what's his name? Achilles. He's a demigod, but it's not because he's a demigod that he wins or loses, right? It's because of whether the gods are on his side or not. That's what it's about. It's, is God on my side? 
And so when God doesn't win the battle for you, or if you lost the battle, another way to put it, it's because God wasn't on your side. And of course, if you're, you know, the, an ancient Near Eastern Hebrew or Israelite or Judaite or any of these peoples, you think we didn't hold up our end of the bargain. We didn't keep our end of the deal. And so now God has abandoned us. Yeah. And now we're in exile. We didn't do enough sacrifices or we did the sacrifices in the wrong way or said the wrong name of a God or or something like that. Yeah, maybe somebody was impure, you know, they were ritualistically unclean when they performed the sacrifice, who knows, right? And th and this is why again we get the Pharisees. You can understand where they're coming from. It's a real anxiety, right? It's a real existential angst that they carry. Although maybe they're not really fully aware of that. That's what's behind it, right? I think at some point it just becomes your tradition and that's your mode of your religious practice, right? So Christopher, I already mentioned that right off the bat in chapter one, we've got some dating errors about the times that these things are happening. And it just, just kind of points out that whoever's writing this didn't have either very good sources or a firm grasp on the history and, and names of people. In verse two, we get this interesting statement here. It says, the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. This actually goes to one of the points of the errors here, because it wasn't Jehoiakim, it was Jehoiakim, who was the son of Jehoiakim, that this happened to. And so already there's just like an error in Jewish history itself, right? <laughs> this person either didn't have access to the right sources or just wasn't doing it right. In some ways, I might have expected some later scribes to correct it, right? Wouldn't you have maybe? That's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Maybe they didn't know either. So some of the things, you know, if I were adding to what I said earlier about what the writer is up to, right, and sort of making this look like it's an older prophecy of future events that have actually already happened. And of course, if you can pass it off as older, then it looks like the prophet actually foretold the events and correctly at that, right? Unlike maybe the technicality again with Isaiah. So verse two, one of the interesting things about the wording here, like I said, is the Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power. And so again, this is central to the theme of the book of Daniel. The Lord is the one either letting or orchestrating events. Not only does the Lord do all these things, but on the other side, again, you have these stereotyped characters, stylized plots, marvelous interventions, as my commentary puts it. God is the one making things happen on the one hand, right on the one side. On the other side, God is able to do this despite not only is someone bound, but he's bound by the strongest men. You see those kind of mm. little details. If you pay attention to the text, right? He's bound by the king's strongest men. Right. And so if he can get out of that, well, then God is more powerful than the king's strongest men. Right. Yeah, we're going to see that throughout here. The kings are displaying their power in the most extreme ways possible. and you know, it's nothing to God. You know, God is still more powerful than that. Yeah. And so in many ways, this harks back to Joseph in Egypt. And in many ways, you see that. Oh, tons of parallels here. Yeah. The second part of verse two goes, these he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Okay. So the two relevant in this context, Babylonian gods we're talking about here are Marduk and his son Nabu or Nebu. Or Nebo. Or Nebo. 
Yeah. And, and we have a Nebo in Utah, which is really strange given. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's related etymologically or not. Maybe not, but somebody should have noticed it and not used it. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. It's a Babylonian god. Come on, guys. So Marduk is the creator god of Babylon. One of his titles is Baal or Baal. And so we get this within the Old Testament. Baal is often used as the title for, for this Babylonian god, Marduk. And then he has a son, just like I said, Nebu. And that's where the part of Nebuchadnezzar's name comes from, Nebu. And it also comes out later when we look in verse 6, where you get Daniel and his companions are given new names, and they're given Babylonian names. And some of them relate to Babylonian gods. And then in the transliteration and maybe just the the transfer of these names between cultures, there's a little bit of corruption that happens. And we can see that mostly in Abednego's name, because it was probably Abednebo. So like the servant of Nebo or Nabu. Whereas Nebuchadnezzar is the son of Nebo or, or no, as Nebo, he is the son of God. Yeah. And so Abednebo would be, you know, the servant of Nebo, but it becomes Abednego with a G, it just shifts. There's the sound shift to the the G. So it's just kind of- That happens. It was just a point I wanted to bring out with the way that the names, sometimes the sounds shift. And so you get these little differences in vowel changes all the time, but consonant changes can happen too. Ben, this may be a good point to introduce the conversation about the names of God. You know, Herodotus, again, he goes and he sees- in Babylon, the statue of, of Baal that he says is a statue of Zeus. He says, he writes a statue of Zeus, and then he says, but they call him Baal. Right. Yeah. So for the Greeks, for Herodotus in particular, you have different civilizations, and some may have additional gods, but there's always like this core set of gods that whenever he goes around, he's like, oh, it seems like all cultures worship these same gods. They just call them different things. And that seems to be like Herodotus's approach that there's the same gods, it's just people have different names for them. And so in Greek, you know, they say Zeus and for Rome, that becomes Jupiter, which we then say Jupiter. And the etymological root of those Zeus and Jupiter, which are cognates, is sky. Zeus just means like sky, but the implied second part of that is father. So Jupiter, Jupiter means sky father. And that's so interesting to me in terms of what we have for the name of our God, which is heavenly father, right? Exactly. Yeah. The sky God. So another example, if we take Zeus and we pronounce it as an ancient Greek, Zeus, where there's, if you could just imagine a D in front of the Z kind of stuck to it, right? Zeus, then it's easier to see how it becomes Dios. Yep. I remember before I quit Facebook years ago, over seven years ago, and now I'm back, you know, that people were arguing about, you know, against Islam. And I was part of Latter-day Liberty's team, I guess, you know, and I was asked to moderate, to answer to anti-Islamic, Islamophobic comments, these kinds of things. And you got comments where people are saying that, that Muslims don't worship the same God we worship, right? They worship Allah and everybody knows, I don't know how they know this, the same way everybody else knows, right? By knowing the wrong thing. <laughs> because they they got it from the same place from social media, that that's a moon god. Whereas Allah is just literally the god in Arabic. Right. Al-Ilah. Now, for Muslims, Allah is a proper name, so they wouldn't agree with this, but it looks like Al-Ilah, the god. So not just a god, but the god. 
And this is the same word that's used in the Bible in Arabic. All Arab Christians read of Allah in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, it's the word for God. Yeah, it's Dios, right? And so we don't say that people who worship Dios, again, Latter-day Saints, Hispanics, worship Dios. We don't say they're worshiping Zeus because the word Dios comes from Zeus. Right? We don't say that. Latter-day Saints, we have a proper name for God, Elohim, but that just was the ancient name for God, Elo or Eloi, or not Eloi, Elo, but Elohim being the plural of that. But we've taken it as a proper name, but there's actually like a root to the meaning of that word and, and the name for the God. So it's not a fair criticism, especially from a Latter-day Saint perspective, to then go and say, well, you know, that's not God because that's a proper name for him, right? Like it's actually the same linguistic root of Allah. They're both Semitic and they come from the same root. So it's really the same thing. Yeah. Elohim just means the gods. Yeah. It's just plural. It's an admission of polytheism. The the Muslims would know that. (laughs) Because you have God the Father, his son, the Holy Ghost. This is considered polytheism in Islam. That brings us to another point, Ben, which is why does this matter, right? So for Herodotus, he sees it's a statue of Bel as a statue of Zeus, same difference, right? But for the Israelites, no, these are foreign gods. Your King James Bible may say strange. Yeah. Right? When saw we thee a stranger? Again, back on Facebook back in the day, right? When the Syrian refugees were coming because their country was falling apart and they're looking for a place to go and people weren't willing to take them in, I made my own translation to help people see what this verse is saying that says, when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, is when saw we thee a foreigner yeah. and took thee in. It's This is the meaning, right? So the word, the Greek is xeno. Foreigner, alien. Yeah. So they worship their God, we worship our God. For Herodotus, it's the same if you call him Baal or Zeus, it's the same God. For me, if a Muslim or, a, or an Arab Christian, for that matter, calls God Allah, it's all the same. It's the same God. But that doesn't seem to be what we see here in the Bible, right? There's this huge concern. And yet, it's not necessarily everybody's concern. We've mentioned this. Among the Deuteronomists and their ilk, there's this concern. And of course, the priests, especially, you know, we've got to do things exactly in the right way and call things by the right name and wear the right clothes and wash ourselves in the right way and do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around, right? Yeah, But that's not true for, apparently, for the people who are still bringing in the asherim and they're still doing the things, right? And maybe in their hearts, by the way, they're worshiping the one and only true God by another name. Maybe you are, because now we get into the no true Mormon fallacy, right? There's the no true Scotsman fallacy. I believe in the same God that you believe in, right, Ben? Yeah, well, I mean, yes and no, right? Because that's the question is what does it mean to believe in the same God? Does it mean, like you were saying, they have the same name? Do we pronounce it exactly the same? Or could some phonetic analysis detect a difference in the way that we pronounce the name? Is our psychological or mental conception of God different? And and how do we determine that? Yeah, and the name does seem to be fetishized because you might wonder, why does Ben care about the name if it's pronounced differently? Go ask an evangelical on the street corner. You're going straight to hell if you worship the wrong God, by which he means if the God you worship that you read about in the Bible doesn't sound the way that it sounds to him when he reads the Bible. So I had a, a Baptist neighbor tell me, we go by what the Bible says. And I thought, well, no, you go by what you say the Bible yeah. says, and so do we. He probably knows that Latter-day Saints are using the Book of Mormon as a key to interpret the Bible. And so, no, we're not going by what the 
Bible says, quote unquote, right? In the way he says, but in reality, we all are. And that's the point that scripture is not a text, but it's a way of reading a text. Mm -hmm. And we do that in communities. The perennialists will tell you that God is speaking to humanity in different times, in different places, and he rhymes. He doesn't necessarily say the same things, but all the things he says rhyme. I'm saying that the way that we say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, you know, this is the idea. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And so as we go into our own mode of religious practice, all the way into it, we're being faithful to God. But if someone else goes into their religious practice, they're being faithful to God. Now, of course, every religion has their violent interpreters, their fundamentalist interpreters. We're not talking about that. But it's interesting that the closer you get to the people who argue less about theology and worry more about loving other people and being close to God and serving other people, the more they look alike, right? And the less disputes there are. Less contention comes up, yeah. Less contention, yeah. Yeah. And so if you look at mystics, if you look at a, a Jewish mystic, a Christian mystic, a Muslim mystic, you know, they might differ a little bit in their details, but they're all just want to experience God. They just want to sit with God. They don't want to argue about how many people God is or how many body parts God has or what gender God is. They just want to be in the presence of God. I think those are important points. It's not to say that names aren't important, but that they are important within a context. And so, for instance, you know, we use the name Jesus, which is an English derivation of a Greek transliteration or, or translation of the Aramaic Yeshua, right? Which I'm probably not even pronouncing like a native would, right? So why aren't we saying Yeshua then is the question, right? Well, I know Messianic Jews who insist on on using that to refer to Jesus, right? They say Yeshua. That's right. That's the name. And that's their mode. And that's their mode. That's the point of saying is is it it's not that it's not important. It is important within that context to be true to the mode. But it's not helpful to objectively, objectively insist on that being the only way to relate to God. Right. And this is important for peace, Ben, that we understand these things, that we understand that, as Rumi put it, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. So we're not just talking about different religious traditions. We already covered that while you and I may both agree with the articles of faith, maybe we would pass the same Temple Recommend interview. We believe in God, the Father, and Jesus, his Son, and the Holy Ghost. And yet, what do I mean when I say that? And what do you mean when you say that? And what do other people mean when they say that? We may find out if we look into that, which is, by the way, not even possible. Not possible, yeah. <laughs> but there's no true Mormon. Yeah. Any more than there's any true Scotsman. There's some overlap, but the circles aren't exactly over each other. Thankfully, God is my judge and my relationship is with him. My covenants are with him. They're not with you, Ben. Right. They're not with the church. Right. They're with God. Moving into the story a little more, here in chapter one, right off the bat, we get this story of the food, the king's food being offered to Daniel and his companions. And the food, they're concerned about being defiled by the food because there apparently would be things in it that are prohibited by the Torah. Or the other way that this could go is it their actions in refusing the food are a way of resisting the royal authority and asserting their Jewish identity. Remember the main theme here, or one of the main themes, not the sub-theme to the, the God's sovereignty, is the asserting and maintenance of the Jewish identity within exile. 
Yeah, and it could be both at the same time, right? I don't eat that because I'm a Jew. Yes. Right? I don't I don't go to war because I'm a Christian. I could say that, right? Yeah. Here's a third possibility that occurred to me, Ben. I know that your reading is the canonical one. I get that, and I admit it's possible, even plausible. But here's another possible, if not plausible, reading. What if they just so I don't know what's in the food. There there could very well be something that's prohibited in their dietary law. But what if it's not that? What if it's just we don't want the sumptuousness and the too much food, right? It's about quantity, not quality. Mm. We don't want to eat like a king. Mm. So it's about humility, maybe? Yeah. Well that and sort of, you know, it's gonna make you sluggish. Okay. Much is made of how virile they are, right? How yeah. Yeah. So so we tie that into what they're eating and it looks word of wisdom like or something like that is how we right. read it, right? Yeah, and that's the the next place to go with this. Yeah. At the same time, the spirit of the word of wisdom would be about uh-huh. not eating so much and such rich foods and things like this, eating more, you know, closer to nature and I don't know, less meat, right? So you can imagine a king's meal is gonna have I mean, maybe it wasn't kosher meat. I don't know. Maybe the it wasn't sacrificed properly. If it was sacrificed to a foreign god, that would definitely be a problem. Yes. But maybe it's just too much food. Maybe it's just too much meat. I don't know. Yeah. I have cereal in my cupboard called Ezekiel something <laughs> or other because it's this idea of pulse, you know, and it comes from this story. I don't know why it's called Ezekiel. Well, it must be mentioned there too. Yeah, that's odd. But yeah, in the King James Version, it says pulse, which that would be like seeds and nuts. I thought it was interesting in the NRSV, it says vegetables, which the commentator said actually is probably not as good of a translation as pulse because the word literally just is talking about seeds of plants. Isn't it funny how in your NRSV study Bible, it sounds like you have the same thing I have over in uh, in your Oxford study Bible. I'm using the HarperCollins study Bible, same translation, right? NRSV, but you get these comments. We're using this translation but let me footnote to you that that this other translation is actually better. Yeah. <laughs> well, then why did you use this one? And another one, I don't want to fail to mention this on this episode. This shows up almost every book, but I think we saw it more this time because of the Aramaic, that either the Hebrew is wrong or the Aramaic is unknown. Hmm. But even in the, in the books that are written in Hebrew, you get a lot of footnotes that we don't mention here that I'm bringing up now that say, meaning of Hebrew uncertain or meaning of Aramaic uncertain. So we're given a translation because we can't leave a blank. It's the Bible. It's funny because if I go read Sappho, I get blanks. Yeah. Of course, a blank could mean something is completely missing, right? You can't make a guess. So, And, and that is the case with Sappho, right? We're not missing any text here, but if we don't really know what it means, then you should definitely footnote it. And we don't see that in our quad, you know, in our standard works. Yeah, yeah. It's it's implied that the translation is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good idea to grab a study Bible. Yeah. Not just to have the notes, but to have these linguistic notes, to have a better translation from better manuscripts. We covered all of this in episode, whatever, the introduction to the Old Testament. Right. Sometimes the translation is uncertain because the, the word, the root of the word is simply unknown. Like it's unique. This is the only place it's used in the whole canon. That's true. Or yeah. other times, the root is known, but the form is not. And so it's like, okay, we we know that this word is talking about something, but we don't know whether it's passive voice or or whether it's talking about a noun or a verb here, whether, whether it's plural or singular. I mean, I'm kind of making some of this up, but that's the idea here is that we, we understand there's a root of this word that's referring to something, but we don't know what function it's performing in this sentence. As a fellow amateur, you know, I'm calling you a linguist and myself a linguist. We are amateur linguists, you know. 
I get why you would say that, but you're speaking to grammar categories where these kind of things happen. I know you know grammar, and this is what happens. Yeah. So these words that you mentioned, Ben, that only occur once, they have a technical name, hapax legomenon. You might run into that in your reading, hapax legomenon. It's a word that occurs only one time in the text. And what's hard about those words is usually to get the meaning of a word, if you don't have a dictionary to go to, you're, and you, you've experienced this probably on your own. There are times that you see the same word over and over in different contexts, and you never bother to look it up. And eventually you get a sense of what it means from seeing it in different contexts. That's how it's done yeah. when you don't have a dictionary. But if the word only occurs once, so it only has one context, it's hard to determine the meaning. And sometimes theological issues hang on these words <laughs> or, or they're built or, and they're built in the foundation of these words. For example, in the Quran, the orthodox interpretation is that Jesus was not crucified. The Quran says that they did not kill him and they did not crucify him. And then it goes on to say, but it, it was made to appear so to them. Well, the, the made to appear so, that is hapax legomenon. There's no way of knowing that that's the actual correct way to translate that word. We do the best we can on the context. They did not crucify him, but it was made to appear. They thought they did, so it must have been made to appear so to them, something like yeah. that. But it turns out that, that going into that verse further, you find out that they are the Jews, and that's clear from the previous sentence. It's not always clear when I read student papers, but <laughs> they don't think about whether the they actually came from somewhere or goes back to where it's supposed to go, right. but it does go back to the Jews. And so they didn't kill him, which means I could now read the Quran verse to say God did, the Romans did or God did. We all know God is the one who's doing everything. It's a passive verb, then you can throw what other subject you want in there. So, Yeah. So you mentioned the word of wisdom, Christopher. This story is definitely brought up in Latter-day Saint manuals often as a way of teaching the principles of the word of wisdom. And so, you know, I, I, I agree with you. There, There's some meat on that bone, so to speak, right? Ha ha. But it's mostly anachronistic. Yeah. The real story I think yeah. here is about Jewish identity. Right. And and it only has a subtext of ritual cleanliness as well. But again, this the main theme here- Well, they're related. Yeah. But one of these main themes is, is their ability to assert their identity. And later, we're going to talk about um, civil disobedience type of thing. So Yeah. Then there's God's sovereignty, right? Closely related to their identity. We are Jewish. Therefore, we don't listen to you. We listen to him. And so he's sovereign. You're not. We're not your subjects. We're his. And because we're Jews, Yahweh is our God, not you. Yeah. And you're the son of God. Yeah. You call yourself, right? That's the thing. You know, the son of man thing again that comes up in this book. This is something I thought we wouldn't have to deal with until the New Testament. I didn't remember that it came up here. And again, this is vocabulary. This is wording that doesn't really show up anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. Again, it's in the Apocrypha. It's here and it's in the Qumran scrolls. But it's something that we misread because the son of God that shows up, remember the king is being called the son of God. Well, this has been done since time immemorial, I think I can say, and it's done at the time of Christ. The Roman emperor is the son of God, not only the son of God, but God, God himself, God from God, or maybe he'll become God after he dies. Right now, he's the son of God. After he dies, he becomes divinized. He becomes the God himself but he's referred to in that way while living. He's the savior of the world. All these titles that we think are unique to Jesus, they were given to kings. And so they're given to him as king of kings, not as a unique figure, right? And so I think there's some conclusion that's missing there. That title, son of God, is really an earthly title. Ironically, the other term, the son of man, is the one that makes 
Jesus unique. And that's why it's tied into these scriptures, right? But at the same time, it's tricky because son of man, if we look at the Hebrew here, sometimes it just says a son of man. And man, remember, is Adam. Yeah. So a son of Adam. Right. This doesn't sound like somebody special. This sounds like every man. So it could be either or or both. A son of man or the son of man. You know, in the New Testament, we get that definite article. And I'll be interested to see maybe if there's some particularities with translation. But Jesus says the son of man, and he's kind of referring to himself, right? Well, does he? That's not how I remember it when I looked into the original. I think in John, he says he's a son of man. And so we'll, th- we'll yeah. get to that. Well, that's right? what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> finding yeah. that out will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to that. I didn't think it would come up this early, but here we are. So that's a story that we use within Latter-day Saint tradition a lot of times in connection with the word of wisdom. They're offered the meat and the wine. They refuse and they're going to have the the pulse and the water. And then after 10 days, they're stronger. And so this is a demonstration of how their identity makes them better, right? And there's this overarching theme, I mean, that expands throughout the, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, that the Jewish people are this chosen people. And once they hold to and assert their identity and live into their chesed, their covenant with God, then they will be made into the rulers, right? And and so the order of things is supposed to be that God's people are the center of the world and and they kind of rule from there. And that brings us into chapter two, because we get this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, and only Daniel is able to tell him what the dream is and interpret it. Interesting story about how that all folds out. But obviously, this is reminding us of Joseph in Egypt, right, with interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, while the magicians aren't able to do it. Yeah, another parallel. And so Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, his magicians can't do it. Very, very similar in the story here. They see this image, this this statue, the head of gold, the torso is silver, the hips are bronze or something, the legs are iron, and the feet are, are clay and iron together. I might be getting some of that wrong, but that's the idea of this progression from top to bottom. The interpretation is pretty obvious within historical context that we're talking about the Babylonian Empire being the gold part, the Medes being the silver part. What's interesting here about this is that then that would say that Persia is the bronze, whereas we know that media wasn't really the successor of the Babylonians like historically, but that's how it's seen by the Babylonians. And within this time period, the Medes are are going to succeed the Babylonian Empire and then be succeeded by the Persians. But really what happens is the Persians take over the Medes, then take over the Babylonians. So it's a little bit of incongruence here. And then we have the legs, which are iron. So this would be Alexander the Great, right? This is the the Greek empire that then comes in and, and takes things over. Again, this is another clue that we're talking about this being written at a time after all of these events happen. Ostensibly, we're talking about prophecy, but the precision of how it's it's going through things lends itself to like a political commentary more than it does actual prophecy. That's my opinion, but it also bears itself out in the historical record and by what the scholars say. When we look to the feet that are clay and iron mixed, this would be then the division of Alexander's empire by his different generals and successors. And that's when we start getting these issues with the Jews then trying to assert their identity and struggling back and forth with Antiochus IV. And that, again, that's the context of the whole writing of the book of Daniel. It's not the historical context that's being presented within the book, but that's 
why we get the content that we do. Now, Ben, you mentioned to me in pre-show discussion that we've gotten to a place with this book, at least. Again, next week, we're not necessarily going to be in the same chronology, right? This is a very late book. But you've been studying history by listening to podcasts and whatnot, and you're familiar with this time period in which this is written, right? And the, the events that are being described here, as am I, whether already, you know, before now or by studying, you know, preparing for this podcast. And I was really surprised, you know, I didn't realize, I don't think this is going to be obvious. If you don't have a study Bible, the things that we're saying won't necessarily be obvious unless you really know your history. And even then, right? So is does Alexander get named in the Bible? Cyrus is named. Alexander's not named, but it's clear when you look at, I mean, which chapter has it been? There's a chapter where, again, I said in, in the introduction that every verse or two is dealing with a different event in history, and it's a timeline, and our commentary shows us verse by verse. It's chapter 11, yeah. Yeah, verse by verse, we can see, I'll mention one of the people because there's so many, right? Scipio. This isn't Scipio Africanus, right? This is not the famous Stoic we can read about in, especially in Plutarch's lives, but he is his younger brother. This is the younger brother of, of Scipio. So this is a Roman general we're reading about uh-huh. in this book. Yeah, it's, it's like we're in New Testament times. I mean, we're getting there, right? With this late date. Alexander shows up by something to do with a horn or horns. The same thing in the Quran, you get Dhul Karnain, the two-horned one. That's interpreted by most Muslim exegetes would say that's Alexander the Great. Same here in the Bible. He shows up in the same way with horns mentioned. These are symbols. Some of these are idiomatic types of things. Like it's hard to get into that ancient context. You know, these are memes that fit within this ancient cultural context and penetrating that to see exactly how it's used. If we say now, oh, you got Rick rolled, right? Like everybody knows what that's talking about. But then in a few hundred years, people are going to be like, we have no idea what this means. You know, meaning of English uncertainty. How do you be Rick rolled, right? right? (laughs) (laughs) And that depends on how well we preserve things, right? Or there's so much. I mean, who knows? How can we? It's not even that important. I mean, it's an okay song. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's fun to be Rickrolled. And it's even more fun to Rickroll someone else. <laughs> In this dream that he has, after he sees this image, we have this stone that's cut out without human hands, right? It comes out. Oh, that sounds familiar. This is contrasted with the image that's made with hands. And this is interesting within the context of the entire Old Testament because originally they were required to build altars out of stone, not brick. And this kind of goes back all the way to the Tower of Babel, right? When they made brick to build the Tower of Babel, as opposed to stone that the temples were supposed to be made out of. Well, and this is brick too, right? At least as Herodotus describes the walls of Babylon. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, this is mentioned by Herodotus. He goes into detail of how the brick is made. So it's the same thing Mm -hmm. in a different context. Yeah, yeah. that's that same idea. And so the Jewish identity here really asserts itself symbolically here with the stone that's made without human hands. So if we take that stone cut without hands and the way Way we use it and we tie it back to this context, it really just is about what God's doing. Yes. God is sovereign. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is showing God's operations in the world as opposed to man's operations, which is the statue with all the, the different metals. And so the stone rolls and becomes a great mountain. Well, what's this mountain? That's Mount Zion. It can be representative of the place or the people or the covenant or whatever, but that's what the stone is becoming. It's becoming this kingdom that is represented by a mountain that is Mount Zion or the Jewish people 
or Israel. Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, yeah. Zion. Yeah. So Ben, looking at my notes and, and the time and wondering where, where we'll end up with this, I see something else that I, I meant to mention in the beginning, which is that not only do we see stories that are older than than where we see them here that are reworked and things like this, but we also see that there are significant differences in the stories in the versions of the stories between the Septuagint and the Hebrew Bible. Yes. Right, the Masoretic text. That's true. And so we're mostly reading here the versions from the Masoretic text where our translation comes from. But this is a translation back into Hebrew from a Greek translation from Hebrew. And the Greek translation has different versions of some of these stories or longer versions, or this is longer. <laughs> the point is that they're different, right? That somebody has added or taken away or altered between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. If we take this dream as a prophecy, right, about what's going to happen, it does kind of play out nicely with the way that we see history from a Christian perspective, because when we get to the clay and iron feet, that's the broken up successors of Alexander. Yes, we have Rome coming in, but the prophecy or the dream says in that day, God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, right? Will never be taken down. Yeah. And the idea from a Christian perspective here is, is oh, he's talking about Jesus, right? And Jesus establishes a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so, you know, within our Latter-day Saint tradition, we talk about the great apostasy, but within broader Christianity, we are talking about a church or something or whatever it is that Jesus establishes, a kingdom that is never put down. Right. So we just reinterpret it. Yeah. So there's something as a linguistic note I have been that shows up for me for the first time here in chapter two, but it's something that occurs throughout, you know, thinking again of broader themes, you know, so there's secrets in the King James Bible that are mentioned that are translating the word that could be translated mystery. Mystery, yeah. Mystery is a loan word from Old Persian, and it means something secret, right? But the point, as as I mentioned, as, as used in Greek, musterion, right? This is something, it means to close the mouth, right? So you cannot mention it. And so we talk about mystery cults in antiquity, the temple cult. We don't mean cult the same way that it's used today. In fact, the way it's used today has become useless, Right. It's right up there with fascism. Yeah. It's just something to call people you don't like. But what we mean is that you had the Eleusinian mysteries, you had other temple cults, you have the Jewish temple cult. And there are things that you learn inside of these cults that as an initiate, you know, when you're initiated, you learn things that you are not allowed to talk about. When you see secret in your King James Bible, this may be these mysteries that we're talking yeah. about. And there's a formal prohibition against talking about them, just like we have in our tradition, formal prohibitions about talking about things. But for me, that's a symbolic representation of the actual practical prohibition. And the practical prohibition is the fact that there are certain experiences that you're having of the divine that can't be put into words, like you aren't able to do that, right? These are experiences that can't be expressed linguistically. And so that's always been to me sort of the the point of the formal prohibition isn't so much that the prohibition itself is important, but it's the symbolism that it has to point our minds towards the fact that, hey, there's something going on here that is so deeply personal that you can't express it in words. And and then in our tradition, we have these types of things, especially like in Third Nephi, when Jesus comes and does and says things that the text says, these can't be written. They're too great. Like we couldn't express them in words. Yeah, I'm going to label the thing you're talking about because the second time this has come up in this recording, Ben, 
you're making a distinction between the esoteric and the exoteric. Yeah. The esoteric, the inner experience that you have is something that just can't be spoken. The exoteric is this outside rule, right? The shell that's protecting that inner kernel. So you have the outer shell and the inner kernel, the exoteric and the esoteric. And that's just a rule that says, don't talk about this, but you already knew that because if you're in the experience, you realize you actually can't. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's, I think, worth noticing about this book is it's apocalyptic. Again, that's unlike anything else that we've seen so far in the Old Testament. I know that, you know, the prophets have been read apocalyptically, but we've shown how they're dealing with their own time. And yes, we can read them in other ways too. You know, if we take a multivalence of interpretation as a possibility. But here, this is clearly apocalyptic stuff on the one hand, and it fits in with other writings from the time, from Qumran scrolls, from the Apocrypha, as we've mentioned. But even though it's apocalyptic, if you look at chapter 2, verse 28, you have the end of days. But in the biblical Hebrew, the end of days just means in the indefinite future. Sometime in the future. So it's still, it doesn't have to be at the end of history, so to speak, right? Yeah. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it takes on the meaning of at the end of history. Uh, But in biblical Hebrew, it just means at some indeterminate future date. Yeah. We say latter day, right? That's in the name of our church. Yeah. That's more indefinite. Yeah. It is kind of indefinite. Like it could have both connotations like you're talking about. It could be- It implies an end. Well, the end of history, or it could be just a much later time, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. That is something to consider, just like in terms of what it is these are pointing at. Yeah. You know, what the purpose, the intention of the writer of this. Going back to your comments about the four kingdoms, right? That shows up in chapter two, verses 36 through 45. Daniel gives a symbolical or allegorical interpretation that ends up being a political oracle. If you read closely, the interpretations of the dreams don't actually match up with the dreams. Uh They have extra stuff that the interpreter needs to do what he's doing. Yes. That's something you have to read closely to notice. This comes out in the tree one like a ton. Like it's very obvious something is going on with the interpretation that's not going on in the tree. Exactly. But this, you know, this, these four kingdoms, this is an old ancient Near Eastern motif, right? The idea that there are four and the fifth kingdom, that's going to be the one, right? This is going to be now, I don't know, the restoration of the throne of David or something. But the point is you have these four kingdoms. It occurred to me that this could be related to, it's a very popular book in Latter-day Saint circles, right? The fourth turning or even Skousen's, you know, 5,000 year leap, right? And I asked my wife about it because she's read the book. I haven't. I asked if there's a fifth turning because you can see here there's the four kingdoms and then comes the real deal, right? Yeah. So I asked her, is there a fifth turning, even though it's called the fourth turning? And she said it actually goes back to the first again. So it may or may not be related, but I thought I'd bring it up anyway. But it certainly is an older motif and the quaternality of it. Is that a word? There's a quaternity, right? There's a quaternity. There are four things is very much something that's part of religious symbolism at this time. In Christianity, the triad wins out, right, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but it's much more common in religious circles to see a quaternity. And I would argue that with Mary, you complete a quaternity. Well, and we saw the quaternity. We we didn't really get into this with Ezekiel last time, Christopher. That's right. But in the chapters where he goes into the design of the temple – Quaternity is everywhere. It goes on and on about this. And it's very strong symbolism within that of of completeness, of stability, of exactness, things like that. We have that in our symbolism, you know, it come coming from, from masonry of the square, right? 
As of the time of this recording, I have Dr. David Peck, also known as Sufi al-Hajj Daoud, my Sufi master, scheduled for a Come Follow Me study group to talk about Ezekiel 1 in Sufi terms, and he's going to deal with that quaternity in Sufi terms. There are four realms in Sufism, in mysticism. And this shows up again in Kabbalah too. The tree, again, you mentioned, if you're ready to talk about the tree, that's, again, that cosmic tree. Yeah. That symbol of, you know, this place where heaven and earth meets at the center of the world. It's in Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. It's in, you know, Islamic mysticism or Sufism. Some say Sufism predates Islam. You know, some say it's part of Islam. Either way, these are perennial traditions, right? These things show up here and there in strikingly similar ways. Remember, we compared the vision of Ezekiel to that of Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. You can do that because they compare. Yeah. Chapter three is the story of the golden image that they're supposed to all bow down and worship. And the three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, won't do it. And so the king throws them in the furnace. And then he looks in there and he sees four instead of three. And so then we get these phrases that are a little bit ambiguous, Aramaic, a son of the gods or the son of man in like KJV is translated as. And so that article is not exactly clear, but this is one of the reasons that Book of Daniel you know, gets that Jesus-y interpretation by Christians. There's a theme here of obedience and disobedience that I think is really interesting because in some of our context today, we talk about civil disobedience to an authority that is illegitimate, right? And civil disobedience is a way of displaying that sort of resistance. Here though, we could apply that to this story, but here actually what's coming out is not disobedience, but obedience to a higher power, right? That's the idea here is that their identity calls them to something else to a higher law than the law of the king. And so this story becomes a model for the Jewish resistance during the time of Antiochus IV, like we talked about. This civil disobedience that is, you know, overtly civil disobedient, but the idea is that it's actually obedience, but obedience to a higher power, which necessitates disobedience to the tyrant. Yeah, you know, Riley and I just recorded an episode on our sister podcast on Latter-day Contemplation touching on the issue of how Christians, early Christians, felt the same way about Rome. If an attempt was made to conscript them, they would not serve in the military. They answered to the nonviolent teachings of Jesus, not to the violent call of the emperor. So we start seeing some of the seeds maybe of that mindset and idea here within Daniel. Yeah. This is the chapter where I mentioned in the introduction that we can read about in Herodotus, right? And also in Diodorus Siculus, he's another ancient historian. We could read about this gold statue of Zeus or Bel in Babylon and other things. Shows up in Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 10. There's also that that it's built in Dura. And I just wanted to point out that Dura in Aramaic and Duru in, in Babylonian, it just means fortress or city. It's one of those names that doesn't actually tell us anything. <laughs> so this is located in Dura, but Dura just means it's located in a, in, <laughs> in a fortress city, right? Or behind a city wall, right? A fortress. The idea of burning people in a furnace is not really attested in this time period. It is common to execute people by burning them, but in an open fire. I think, you know, the furnace is one example of the many hyperbolic story-like elements that we see here that make this more clearly folktale. If you're looking for a way to not read this literally, this helps that there's the repetition, it's highly stylized, 
the stereotypical characters, the hyperbole. And this is one example of hyperbole, right? It's not just an open fire. It's a furnace. And it's not just a furnace. They're going to make it X times hotter than usual. We're not just baking clay here. We're, you know, making an example of these guys. Yeah. And of course, in the storyteller, this is not just, you know, that hot. It's this hot. And God is above and beyond all of that. Yeah. Everything's over the top. Yeah. yeah. Everything's yeah. over the top. Yeah. So, but God is above all of that. Yeah. The people that put them in even die and they didn't even get, you know, they even didn't even get in the furnace and they die. Well, I mean, you wouldn't. It's weird that it's mentioned that they're wearing clothing and you would burn hotter if you had your clothes on. But I think at the intensity of the heat that we're talking about in this furnace, you don't even get inside before you're consumed by the, the heat, right. right? You would ignite and combust and burn up before you even got inside. And so why does it matter that they have their clothes on? You mentioned in pre-show that you read in a commentary that there wasn't time to take off their clothes. I yeah, think that's yeah it says there's no time to, to strip them. It's like, what, what time are we talking about? I don't about know here? why it would say that. That was funny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so some of these commentaries uh, appear like that, but many of them are so useful, yeah. right? They're so helpful. That one I don't know about. <laughs> it's like, who who decided there wasn't time? I want those guys in the furnace now. <laughs> Can we take off their clothes first? No. And that's not written anywhere, but the commentarist knows it. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There's this really dark irony at the end of this story of the king burning anyone who speaks out against God or killing, not burning, I guess, killing anyone who speaks out against God. And the irony here is that the whole point of the event seems to be that this God saves people from the penalty of death that's pronounced upon them for not worshiping a particular god. And so then the king like turns it back around and says, oh, okay, now if you don't worship this god, then we're going to kill you. And it's like, no, you're missing the whole point, right? Like You're not supposed to kill people for not worshiping a particular god. But the story, the whole idea here doesn't seem to change the custom or the idea of the king. Now, I say custom, but like you were saying, Christopher, there's actually not only is it not really attested that you would burn people in a furnace, but the idea that you would burn people for religious heresy or blasphemy wasn't really a thing in Babylon and especially in Persia until Antiochus. Antiochus does this. Again, that's what makes this story so interesting within the context because it's like, okay, all of these things are happening that Antiochus did to people. And then they take these and they put those back into this historical context because that's that's really where the writer is. Yeah, I was reminded it's not just that his bad Hebrew gives him away, right? I was reminded I had I was reading an essay by Tiago Forte who put out recently Building a Second Brain in book form. He had a course before that. He wrote some essays, I think he called them Praxis, a series of four Kindle books. And he mentions that he read some hundreds of sci-fi novels and was giving some lessons, you know, from that reading. And one is you really can't predict the future because you don't know what kind of things are going to show up that change everything. Yeah, butterfly effect. Yeah, the, the author gets caught in this, I'm going to call it a fib, right? By archaeologists, linguists, again, all these tools that we have at our disposal to do actual history that they didn't have. He didn't have those tools and neither was he even interested in doing history, thought about doing history. That's not what the Bible is about. It's not about history the way we do it today. I have some other thematic elements here that I want to point out, again, that show the folkloric nature of this story. Right, The furious rage in 313 is a very stock motif. It shows up in Esther and Maccabees also. 
to say that the fire was seven times hotter than usual again that's not necessary if you want to burn someone you don't need it to be seven times. did they have a thermometer to know that it was seven times even that yeah i don't know so then you have it's numerology this number is symbolic of completion that's true yeah that's true seven is perfectly hot isn't it and it was also mentioned that it was three and a half years that you're going to be under mm. foreign rule. Well, that's just half of a complete time, yeah. right? So it's not going to be forever. It's just going to be half of that time. Yeah. You have in 320, the strongest guards I mentioned earlier. Even the strongest guards can't go up against God, right? The tunics and garments that I mentioned earlier show up in 321. And another way we can read those is as a way that the storyteller has of delaying the plot a little bit and increasing the tension. If I you know, stop and talk about clothes, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm delaying the tension. I'm increasing the tension. I'm delaying the plot, right? Good storytelling. Yeah, it's good storytelling. Now, it is interesting if they really were burnt. Somebody thought about where they were because there's an opening in the top and bottom. So that is like a kiln. If it's not attested that people were burnt in kilns, that doesn't mean that these guys weren't. I don't know. Yeah. And so then you have this fourth figure again, and he's described as an angel in verse 28. It's complicated, right? We have, there's <laughs> an LDS scholar, Dan McClellan, right? He's an LDS scholar, works for the church with our friend Brandon Dupuy in the church translation department. Is that right? I know he's a translation supervisor. I'm not sure if he works with Brandon or not. Yeah, he's a biblical scholar, right? PhD. And he's writing about I saw some TikTok videos. I think he's doing scholarly writing on this too. But the point is, he brings up that every time we see an angel of God showing up in the Old Testament, maybe I shouldn't say every time, but oftentimes- Many times, yeah. Yeah, many times at least. When you see an angel, the original text argues Dan McClellan said, God showed up. And so they just stick- Malak in front of it, and, and then it becomes, I think that was actually the Arabic pronunciation, but you stick the angel in front and you get an angel of- God instead of God himself. The of is understood yeah. when you put those two nouns together in Hebrew and Arabic alike. Right. So in chapter four, Christopher, is this dream of the tree. I know you have some things to say about this. For me, you get verses, let's see, 10 through 12, talk about this tree that's at the center of the earth. The top reaches heaven. It provides food for all living beings who are fed by the fruit of this tree. And to me, this just seems like an obvious symbol of the divine feminine. Now, I know that that's probably couched in a lot of my cultural context or maybe not cultural context, but just like my religious thought patterns over the past several years and all that we've talked about with Asherah, Asherim, and, and Nephi and, and the symbolism of trees and everything. But to me, again, it just seems so obvious. Oh, yeah. And what happens strange in this dream is that starting in verse 13, it just takes this total weird turn. And it turns into an interpretation that seems doubtful, like the tree turns into a person that then gets a different brain and goes into exile. And it's like, I don't know what happened to this dream. I've had weird dreams. Everybody has weird dreams that do weird things and take weird turns, but there's just no consistency to it. And for me, and I didn't see this in the commentary, but for me, it looks like 13 and after for this vision is some sort of addition in order to bring out a particular interpretation that the story is trying to make. But verses 10 through 12 look like something different to me. Here's what I can say from my study. First of all, this chapter is different from the other chapters one through six. Yes. 
That's significantly different. When we get to verse 13, what I found is you'd get this holy watcher, literally a watcher, a holy one. Well, okay, what is it? That's the question. <laughs> it's a watcher. This watcher term doesn't show up anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. This is the only biblical occurrence of this term to designate an angelic being. That's a quote. It shows up in apocryphal books though. It does. It shows up in Pseudepigrapha. It shows up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's in First Enoch, Jubilees the Genesis Apocryphon. So again, that helps us put this book in that context. Yep, that's true. By the way, the stump and root. So you said I would have something to say. Look, I have lots to say about <laughs> sacred trees, the cosmic tree, the divine feminine. I'm planning on discussing this in Come Follow Me study group. I'm going to wait. I may even reread after reading 415, right? You have a stump and roots. This implies some kind of regeneration. I was reminded of some writings of Hane Genon and other Sufi perennialists. And I'm going to, again, invite Dr. David Peck to join us. Otherwise, I will have plenty to say myself on the symbolism of these visions. The king of heaven, this is verse 37, right? The only occurrence of this epithet, king of heaven, in Daniel or in the Hebrew scriptures? I know that the term king of heaven only exists within the Hebrew scriptures. In Daniel. Okay. I thought it existed elsewhere, like Ezra, Nehemiah and stuff. But my understanding was that it doesn't exist outside of the Hebrew Bible, like within ancient texts. But we do get things like the Most High that is attested in other ancient texts, but the term uh, "king of heaven" is only within here. But I don't. I think it's in other places besides. Only in Daniel, according to my study Bible. Okay. But there is imagery that compares. They say in Deuteronomy thirty three twenty six, and terminology that compares in Genesis twenty four seven. Okay. But not the exact phrase, right? So the only other thing I want to say about four is verse twenty two, and this is Daniel speaking to the king about the interpretation. He says. It is you, O king, you have grown great and strong, right? I love how the interpretation is, it's you. And isn't the interpretation of things always, it's you. It's about you, right? Like, you're so vain. Well, <laughs> there's no other interpretation that's personally meaningful. Exactly. I told my analyst, one of the silliest things I've ever said, right? I said, I just want to point out that the things that I'm telling you about my experience, this is just my experience. I don't know what other people are thinking. I'm just telling you what I think. That's all we're there to deal with is my experience, right? That's the purpose of analysis. Yeah, yeah. As if there was another question anyway. Yeah, that's all implied. And that's all I can know, right? How could anyone know? He, he said to me, he said, is there anyone else who thinks like you? Have you found anyone else who thinks like you? No. Well, there just, there probably isn't, right? <laughs> and that's true for all of us. Right. No true human being fallacy? I don't know. In some <laughs> sense, we're all alike. In another, we're so different. Oh, that's the idea. Jesus is the true human being. That model, that perfect man. Yeah. Properly understood, you know, as a model, it can be really powerful, right? As an idol, I'm not sure it's useful. Yeah. Again, it's idolatry. It's the same problem as always. But as a model, very useful. Yeah. Something I may not be able to attain, but is worth striving for. All right. Chapter five, we have the writing on the wall. This is alluded to even within our language. This is the writing on the wall, I think, right? When people say we see the writing on the wall, yeah. isn't this what this is talking about? Sometimes it's the words of the prophets written on the subway wall. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Simon and Garfunkel, of course. Exactly. The context of this is that they're all partying and drunk wine and who knows what other substances might be involved. I just think it's interesting that the king, after he's under the influence of alcohol and who knows what else, sees the fingers of a human hand appear and write something on the wall. Like- this seems to be a hallucination. And maybe this is another way that these sort of revelations happen, not just by dreams in the night, but also by 
you know, chemically induced hallucinations? I don't know. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've never seen fingers <laughs> writing on walls. That seems more like a psychedelic thing. But here's the thing. It's a popular motif in folktales. Yes. It's attested in other writings. You know, this shows up in the Book of Mormon, but it's ambiguous. It's vague because it's only an allusion to something we aren't privy to within the text. There's a part in Alma where Amulek gets up and he says, I'm a descendant of Aminadab who interpreted the writing on the temple wall. And it's like, we don't know what you're talking about, Amulek, but the people that you're talking to apparently do. I have a linguistic note. In the King James Bible, we read of scarlet, right? And there are times where scarlet translates a Hebrew word that means scarlet. There are other times, as in the book of Daniel, where it's not the same Hebrew word that translates scarlet, and the King James translators still give us scarlet, where they should be giving us purple. Mm. And purple is this sign of dignity or royalty. And the reason why only royalty wore purple, I mean, the, the Roman senators had a purple stripe, you know, but they didn't wear all purple, is this purple dye that's used to make clothes purple, not in our day, but in that day, could only be found in this little shellfish in North Africa. Phoenicians had it, yeah. You had to squash a lot of little shellfish to get the purple dye, a lot of it. And so a lot means expensive, right? If it's something that's rare, if it's something that's, you have to get this teeny tiny shellfish and just to get a little bit of purple out of it, and you need enough to dye clothes, then guess who gets to wear those clothes that are purple? The king. Yeah. Royalty. Dignity. Maybe you get a stripe on your tunic if you're a senator, right? right? So the words that we see on the wall here are written on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. It's a riddle and it's interpreted by Daniel as meaning a particular thing. But the words just mean like counted, weighed, and divided. And that's it's just three words. It's not clear to me why mene is spoken twice. Maybe you have something to say about that. Christopher. Oh, you know, it's interesting. I'm comparing, you know, what you're saying with what I have in my notes. My understanding is that mene sounds like to number and tekel sounds like to weigh. These are puns. Okay. And peres sounds like to divide. There's also a second pun there, which is fun because it's a pun on the Persians. Well, there definitely could be puns going on here that are a little hidden from us because of the language, Aramaic. right? But Daniel interprets these words and then sort of pulls a narrative out of them. This is what's happening with these seers, with these dream interpreters, right? You get a small set of things and then this whole narrative narrative is then sort of pulled out from this. Oh, so. so it's the interpretation that's doing the punning. Yes. So here are these words. He takes puns so that he can then make it about what he wants uh -huh. it to be about, which is political. I get it. Yes. But it's just good stuff. It's just these three words or, you know, Mene's spoken twice, which is not clear to me why. Okay. So they're enigmatic otherwise, right? Unless you have someone to tell you, oh, this represents this, which I'm doing by way of a pun. Exactly. If I'm Daniel. You yeah. know what the words mean in and of themselves, but you don't know what it means, right? Okay. So the words are known. It reminds me a little bit of the mysterious uh, or enigmatic letters that appear at the, at the beginning of some chapter or surahs of the Quran that no one knows what they actually, I mean, we all know Alif, Lam, Mim are three letters of the alphabet, yeah. but they don't spell anything and we don't know why they're there. Yeah. So are you saying these words were known? Because they could be known and we still go to a pun to interpret them politically, right? It's true that it's a little unclear whether the text that was used to write was a known text or if this was like some, you know, like heavenly text that only Daniel knew. To me, it seems more like 
No, I mean, it was readable. You got the translation, but you didn't have the interpretation. Yeah. And so Daniel comes and interprets this. And one of the things that comes up interesting to me is in the difference between the KJV and the NRSV of this, because the last word the NRSV says is parson. In the KJV, it's spelled U-P-H-A-R-S-I-N. And when I was listening to it, they pronounced it Upharsin with the P-H, like the, the Greek P-H. And I don't know how it was anciently, but my understanding of, of modern Persian is that it's difficult to distinguish between P and F. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no there's no P in Arabic, right? The Persians have the B in place of the P. They'll say, you know, an Arab speaking English would say, we don't have B, only B. I just know there's ambiguity there on the, the sounds. I didn't know if maybe the reader of the KJV was pronouncing it Upharsin when it should have still been Upharsin, but the PH is a Greek transliteration of a similar sound in Greek. And you would be able to speak maybe more to this, Christopher, but you know, Greek words in English, we we have the PH, but it's not phonetically, it's not exactly F. It's a little bit different. Isn't that correct? I'm looking at Pettis. And to me, that's a pun on Fadis, right? It's a, per, a pun uh, on Persians. Okay. okay. And so Persians today, it's roughly equivalent to Iran. Yes, right? correct. Yeah. They defeated Farsi. the Medes in 550 or 549 BCE. And then eventually in 331 BC, their empire falls to Alexander the Great. Well, and see, we call it Farsi, which is right. still just the cognate of Persian, Parsi, right? And again, that's the confounding of the P and the F there. So, Right. Yeah. Farsi is just Persian for Persian. I don't know why we say Farsi. We don't say I speak Castilian. We say I speak Spanish, right? Yeah. And here, by the way, Darius the Mede, right, is mentioned in verse 31 of chapter 5. There's no such historical figure. So Babylon, again, is conquered by Cyrus the Great of Persia, not by Medes, despite what Isaiah says in chapters 13, 21, 50, 41, even Daniel 9. There were three kings of Persia with the name Darius. Well, sometimes these sort of things get confused in historical records. I mean, because people start calling the other by a wrong name sometimes, or maybe sure. not a wrong, but just from their perception. For instance, I know that Amish call anybody that's outside of their community, they just call them English. Oh, yeah. But we don't refer to ourselves as the English, right? We're not English, we're American. Yeah. And so sometimes there's this confounding of peoples when when one kind of goes into the other and they identify with themselves differently than outsiders identify them. So Sure. The Persians conquered the Medes. They they subsumed them, right? I remember the first time I was called a gringo by a Brazilian. I was aghast. <laughs> I was just beside myself because as a Hispanic, I call Americans gringos. Yeah. And I was being called a gringo when I'm Hispanic. That's because gringo for a Brazilian means anyone who's not Brazilian. Yeah. If a Babylonian says anybody to the east of here is just a Mede. That happens. You know, it's just a broad generalization term that just doesn't match up with how the people there see themselves or identify, right? Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, the Hispanic world hasn't caught up with the Anglo world in political correctness. We still call Asians Chinos. Okay. It doesn't distinguish between anybody. It's just Chinese, right? Right. This is obviously not an academic way of dealing with things, just the way people talk. Chapter six is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. One of the interesting things in here is that we see Daniel praying towards Jerusalem, right? So this is the first example I saw of a Jew in exile actually doing three daily prayers towards Jerusalem. The idea is it's towards the temple. 
Now, it becomes really important in the exilic period to pray towards Jerusalem. And the early Muslims also prayed towards Jerusalem. And Muhammad called himself a Jewish prophet. And he went to the Jews and looked for recognition. And it was only when he wasn't recognized as a prophet by the Jews that he then sort of mm. sets himself apart from them and it becomes something separate. And then at that time, the direction of prayer is changed from Jerusalem to Mecca. And very similar, right? Five times a day, the Jews three times a day. They used to pray standing up. Now they're praying in a little more secretive way, right? Here, Daniel is on his knees, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, everybody knows the story. There's this decree that anybody who makes a request of anyone but the king within a certain period of time, which is not clear to me. This this seems a very contrived story in some ways, right? There's maybe some kernel here, but there's a lot of things about this that are just stylized. It's a legend. Yeah. And so, they find Daniel praying. So, he's making petition to somebody other than the king and they throw him. Got to throw him in the lion's den because that's the law, even though the king doesn't want to. And this kind of, this idea that the law of the Persians and the Medes, right, is unalterable. This is an assertion by these Jewish writers that we find in the book of Esther and other places that isn't attested historically. It's just some interesting way that they viewed it or made an assertion about their culture and society that didn't play out historically. Yeah. And this story in verse 22, I found a footnote in my HarperCollins study Bible that actually backs up Dan McClellan, what I was saying earlier about Dan McClellan. Post-exilic Jewish writers increasingly depicted divine human encounters as mediated through heavenly beings. Ah. Therefore, there has to be an angel. It can't be God who appears. It has to be an angel of God. And so all of those instances of perhaps God appearing earlier in the Hebrew Bible could be, again, by these Deuteronomistic reformers, by these post-exilic redactors, they may have wanted to change that from God appeared to an angel of God appeared. That's possible. And that's theological, right? That's, again, theological. You can't see God in their conception of God. So it couldn't have been God. It has to be an angel of God. So here in the book of Daniel, we have the first time that angels are actually named. We get Gabriel and we get Michael. Michael in the Latter-day Saint tradition is identified with Adam, the first man. And also this term ancient of days is identified with Adam by Joseph Smith. And so all of these terms kind of get wrapped up into one. And this with a lot of other things that go on the book of Daniel as I was reading through it, I'm seeing, hey, the religious mind of Joseph Smith seems to have had a powerful impact from the book of Daniel here. Or I would argue the Apocrypha. Yes, that's a good point. Right. Again, these themes are very similar to the Apocrypha, especially the book of Enoch. We know about Joseph Smith and the book of Enoch. Uh-huh. I say the book of Enoch. There's no such book. The books yes. of Enoch, right? Well, the book of Enoch as sort of this abstract idea, but then we right. have all these different versions, so to speak, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's like it's like saying the Bible. There, there's not the Bible either, but we still talk about the Bible. So this is Cyrus the Persian, right? Cyrus the Great as the one that we get here in chapter six, who's going to allow the Jewish exiles to return home. Yeah. In five thirty nine BCE, it is noteworthy that he has this kind of religious tolerance. You know, we see the same thing in Islam, contrary to popular belief, right? This idea that when we conquer, that people can still preserve their religious identity. Not only that, but that also we're interested in taking all the learning and science that they have. This put the Muslims at the top of the world at the height of the Islamic empire because they took in all of the knowledge and all of the learning. What is it we say in the Doctrine and Covenants? They were seeking out of the best books, you know, wherever they could find knowledge and learning. And then and they, the Prophet Muhammad said, Lost knowledge is the property of the believer. I believe we get something just like that from Joseph Smith. It's something similar, right, in spirit. Seek knowledge even unto China, says the Prophet Muhammad, right? Same idea. Well, Ben, 
In the interest of time, we've covered most of the major themes. We've gone into some detail in some of these chapters. Is there anything more that you really want to bring in from, you know, from the later, the latter half, the second half? And it really is a little bit different from the first half. There's so much to be said. Yeah. There's some different things going on. I I mentioned that a lot of the stuff here, I see similarities to Joseph Smith's experience and, and religious articulation. There's a lot of things here, and you you said you made a good point that that has a lot to do with the broader apocryphal text in terms of those types of experiences. It's interesting, Ben, because the the apocrypha get left out of the King James Bible yeah. around the time of Joseph yeah. Smith and the time that he's flourishing. Let's say yeah. a lot of Latter Day Saintism is built on material that comes from the apocrypha and from you know from other writings that that influenced Joseph Smith that then aren't part of the canon. Right. And that's just interesting to me. Yeah. But their ideas find their way into our canon anyway. (laughs) That's right. You know, we mentioned chapter 11 is kind of this prophetic history lesson that culminates with the role of of Antiochus IV, right? It's- I mean, just get yourself a good study Bible and and It just went through it. It was so interesting just reading through history. Alexander the Great, the Ptolemies, you know, the- the Seleucids, Antiochus, this Roman general I mentioned earlier, Lucius, Cornelius, Scipio, they're all there. Yep. Not mentioned in the text. Not by name, but these are definitely who they are. Biblical scholars have been able to match these up with historical figures. Yeah. yeah. And some of them are, you know, not by name, but they're still really clearly like Alexander the Great, right? Some of these you're arguing based on what the Bible says happened, and we know that something happened over here in history, and we know the name. Others, Cyrus is named by name, and Alexander's not named by name, but the references to the horns make it clear that it's Alexander, just like in the Quran. There's so much going on historically in this chapter. Yeah. Edom shows up, Ben. Again, oh, Edom does. always Edom. I mean, sometime at the end of this year when we're finished podcasting on the Bible, I just have to look into Edom more and try to understand what is it with Edom? The people east of the Jordan, right? The people of Edom, I think we can relate them to, again, if we're talking about somewhere east of the Jordan, it's probably maybe the Nabataeans, maybe in Petra. I was going to say Nabataeans. I mean, the idea here is that there's redness going on and yeah. Esau was red hair. But then when you go to Petra, it's like all the rock is red. The right? rock is red. Same with Wadi Rum, right? Uh, this is the redness of the area. And so it's the land of redness, right? So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And interestingly, there's cutting edge Quranic scholarship that says that the milieu of Muhammad and the Quran is not Arabia, but Petra, hmm. you know, so that's highly controversial, hmm. but interesting. Yeah. Chapter 12 posits itself as saying, hey, this is talking about some ambiguous distant future time, right? This is end times. We we said, well, this could be end of history or it could be just far in the future. And this is sort of tongue in cheek because it's so obvious that it's talking about the here and now that it's sort of a political point of saying, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about something way in the future, you know? So, so don't burn me at the stake for what I'm saying because this is not, I'm not talking about now. (laughs) Yeah. And this is super important because like Revelation that quotes it, it could very well be political commentary, a form of parody that's trying to disguise itself, you know, that has plausible deniability, put it yeah, that way. That's exactly right? what the book of Revelation is. I'm very excited to get to that when exactly, we do it Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it's, it's fitting that that book quotes this book yeah. because they're both doing the same thing. And it may be that the ancient authors of the book of, or author of the book of Revelation knows that about the book of Daniel. Oh, yeah. Has and, to, and is therefore yeah. very much co- consciously following in the same yeah. model. There's something right away in verse four that I want to bring out, Ben. 
This is one of those translation things that I think is just huge because you get in the text that in the Hebrew text that knowledge shall increase. Yes. But in the Greek text, it's evil that increases. Yes. Well, which is it? Because for me, knowledge isn't an evil. Right. It's <laughs> it's a good. And in fact, by the way, I, I'll mention, uh, I'm going to go back and pick this up. I didn't mention that another comparison between, you know, this, this story and Daniel that we compare with the word of wisdom is that wisdom is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Right. That because of the, not only do they have vitality, but wisdom, the, the people who eat polls, right? Yes. And wisdom is identified with the divine feminine as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what, what of this evil versus knowledge? Can you say anything more to that, Ben, other than there's a difference? Well, I, NRSV says evil. And then the footnote says, Hey, in the Hebrew, it's knowledge. The KJV says knowledge. Interesting here that we've had a couple examples where the commentators in the Oxford here actually seem to favor the KJV translations a couple times. You know, the only thing I'm thinking here is that, you know, Septuagint is earlier text. And if Septuagint says evil and then the Hebrew is translated as knowledge, all I can think is that those who did the Masoretic translation have some sort of text they were referencing or tradition they're referencing that says, hey, this has to be knowledge, not evil. That would make this translation a lot like Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible, right? You take some commentary, some midrash, and you bake it into the translation. Yeah. I think that there could be a cultural context in which knowledge and evil could be conflated just in terms of saying, hey, if someone studies to get knowledge, they are likely to use that for evil purposes. What what do we have in the Book of Mormon? You know, to gain knowledge is great, to be learned is wise if you hearken to the counsels of God. Yeah, so some people, because they're learned, they think they're wise. In other words, they're not looking to God for wisdom. They equate their learning with wisdom and therefore don't look for wisdom to God, to the source of wisdom, right? You know, if I can back up to verse 2, Ben, there's something interesting here because my understanding is that ideas of an afterlife of the soul, not of the body, because we have shale. People go down to shale like they go down to Hades. But this is a bodily experience. This is an afterlife that's not really a disembodied soul or something like that, or something that, that where the soul lives on. But we do get hints here. My understanding was that doesn't show up until, you know, the Pharisees, the time of Christ. But look at, you know, Isaiah 26, 19, that came up then. Ezekiel. Yeah, you have an implicit worldview that that divides between saved and damned a little bit. And you have the land of the dust that's probably shale. I don't know what it says in King James. It's in the dust of the earth, which is literally in the land of dust. So that could be shale, right? But then you do have people rising from the dead. Something's going on, right? We're getting the beginning of this idea. So the commentary, the Oxford commentary on this has something interesting to say that I hadn't really considered in terms of resurrection. It says, not all the dead will be resurrected, but only the righteous and the unrighteous who have not yet received appropriate rewards and punishments. In other words, this isn't talking about a universal resurrection. Rather, it's talking about resurrecting people who were good but didn't have justice happen to them, right? They didn't have good things returned to them. They're going to be resurrected so that that can happen. And then the people that were bad that didn't get their just desserts, they're going to be resurrected so they can be punished. I just thought that was an interesting way of taking this verse, right? Yeah. And if you're not a true believer, you know, it sounds like wishful thinking, right? Yeah. You can see where this, where people would say, oh, you know, I wish it were so. And therefore I make up that it's so, right? That's one way of looking at this. Right. We're saying, you know, as a, our tradition is saying, no, there really is life after death. 
And that makes all the difference. Now, what's different about our tradition is it's not all about what happens after you die, right? Joseph Smith said that the purpose of life, not just afterlife, right, is happiness. Hmm. And that if we follow the principles that he teaches, that they bring happiness in this life and in the life to come. Yeah. The afterlife is a continuation of our existence. It's not necessarily something different. We have in the Book of Mormon, hey, the way that you think about the world, the same spirit that inhabits your body now will inhabit your body then, right? So it's about who you've decided to be right now. And that is also who you'll decide to be then. It's not like you're a different person all of a sudden. So the last thing I wanted to share, Ben, is just I'm going to read verbatim here a quote, you know, from a footnote, right, from my HarperCollins NRSV study Bible that speaks to what you were saying about how the author doesn't know his history, right? The contradictory numbers, because that's what we're getting here in verses 11 through 12, the contradictory numbers reflect an attempt to recalculate the time of the end when the first calculation failed. Note that even the first of these numbers points to a time after the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus, which we read about in 1 Maccabees 4, 52-58. So the author evidently did not regard that as the end. The end. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Thank you for listening. Please like and subscribe. If you have comments about this episode in particular, it's always posted on Facebook. Each episode is posted on Facebook. And our what's our Facebook page and group? The Latter-day Peace Studies Nonviolence Group. And then, of course, on YouTube, you can comment on this episode. If you have comments about the podcast in general, again, you can make those with your podcast software. What is it? The, the app that you use to listen to the podcast, which my favorite one is Stitcher. But Apple Podcasts is a great place for you to leave us a review, even if you're a Stitcher listener. It helps bring the podcast to the awareness of others. And if you have questions, comments, thoughts, feelings to share, again, that's one way to do it. Another way is to show up Sunday mornings. There'll be an invitation posted every Sunday morning right before the meeting starts. It starts at 8 a.m. Pacific. You can come discuss with me the week's reading from 8 to 9 a.m. on Sundays. And the link for that is posted on Facebook. If somebody's not on Facebook, just email us, latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com, sure. and we'll get that to you. Christopher, since we last recorded... I did finally look into, it wasn't difficult, but I finally looked into getting our podcast on Amazon Music, which means Audible as well. So both of the Latter-day Peace Studies podcasts, Come Follow Me and Latter-day Contemplation show up on Amazon Music and Audible now. So that's a great place for people to get it as well. And you can leave a review there too. Great. Also, thanks to the volunteers. All of Latter-day Peace Study is a volunteer effort. Ben, you and I are volunteers. We spend, I don't know, 20 hours a week preparing to podcast, a couple of hours on the mic. You have podcast editors. You have Kyle and Michael. You have people working behind the scenes already to prepare for a retreat next summer. Tom Vogel's working on that. You have Bethany, who's managing social media and putting content out there and interacting with you. I sometimes get on Facebook and interact a little bit if there's a question that I feel like I can answer. Bring your questions, bring your comments, bring your thoughts and feelings and share. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>